I have the privilege of talking about a sacrament that I think is like the forgotten sacrament, you know? And that if I write a book, I'll probably call it Marriage, the Forgotten Sacrament. Yeah. And uh, it's obviously a sacrament that the 20s and 30s community has a lot of interest in, right? Because having worked for a long time with young adults, uh, I'm, I'm past 40, so I'm technically not a young adult anymore. I remember when I turned 40, my sister here was like, you're so old. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, what is like, mostly, you know, we, we're all looking for a relationship, right? You're all looking for a relationship. You're looking for love. We're all looking for love. Obviously, we're looking for commitment. Uh, we're looking for companionship. We're looking for communion. You're looking for a family. You're looking maybe for kids, you know? Uh, and some of you have found the right person, and you're kind of on this journey of like figuring it out and discerning. Some of you thought you had found the right person, and it didn't work out, and it's like a heartbreak, you know. And and the pain of young adults over love is so real and so felt, you know. And as chaplain to this group for many years, as uh, technically assistant chaplain still, you know, still on the list as assistant chaplain, go team, <laughs> uh, you get to kind of carry that weight, and you carry that sorrow, you know, and you're all familiar with it, uh, because when you find love, you realize, wow, I'm loved, you know, and it's so important to realize I am loved, and we need it, we need it like existential, you know, we all need it, how least I need it from my community, I need it from my parents. But above all, obviously, we need it from God, right? But that's kind of abstract. It's not exactly tangible. Uh, so how does that work, right? How does all that fit into the picture? And what happens frequently with young adults, with us, what happens with our society and our culture today, why is my sister filming me? You don't need to film me. <laughs> <laughs> you can record me, but please don't. <laughs> Anybody else would have First, right? <laughs> so, so what happens, unfortunately, what happens is that our generation can easily become cynical, yeah? Because like we've tried love and it didn't work, and then we try to do it the right way and it doesn't work. And you know, 50% of our parents are divorced. And so I realize I'm talking to us. I'm talking to a community where you know you have the ideal of marriage, but then so many times it kind of cracks and falters and breaks. Yeah, and that's just our experience. And if you're lucky enough to be in a family of parents that haven't divorced, your best friend's parents were divorced. Or your cousin's parents were divorced. Or maybe your sister already, or your uncle, or your aunt. And so it's a topic that's like super sensitive, right? Like, here we are on a you know casual Tuesday, Fat Tuesday, you know, we're going to be talking about this. And at the same time, like this topic touches some pretty deep kind of fibers in our hearts, right? And so it's a very sensitive topic. So on the one hand, we're going to try to keep it like... I don't know if fun is the right word, you know? But maybe, you know? And at the same time, I realize, like, it's a pretty deep, serious topic, right? That, that many of you have spent hours and hours and hours and weeks, you know, in spiritual directions and prayers and adorations trying to, like, figure out, right? Is love even possible? Is love even possible? And the great secret, and this is where we're going to get to, the great secret is that God cares more about this than we do. God cares more about your broken heart than you. And God, you know, he's kind of like a kid. He's eternally optimistic. Yeah? And uh, he has found a solution to the problem of 
unconditional love. As we look around and we realize that relationships between humans don't quite seem to be able to like latch on to unconditional love, God, in the sacrament of marriage, promises and sustains and offers unconditional love. That's why this sacrament is like super important. And the thing is, when I talk to couples, married couples, sacramentally married couples, Catholic couples, you know, like adoration couples, you know, rosary couples, uh, when you talk about the sacrament of marriage, also for them, maybe they were never told. And so that's why I like to think about it as the forgotten sacraments. Not because we don't know about it, but because the church in general doesn't know about it. When we think about the sacraments, we all know the Eucharist, you know, body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus Christ. Yeah, by the way, if you're not Catholic, welcome as well. You know, if your friend dragged you here and you're like, I don't know what he's talking about, but this sounds cool, that's fine, right? <laughs> we know about confession, because like we've been in confession, and you know, we do the thing, and you know, we leave, and we don't have any more sins on our soul, and we feel great. That's awesome. But how does the sacrament of marriage actually work? Yeah, and there's only seven sacraments, so like it has to be important, you know? It's not just kind of the tail end that was added to, you know, oh, and, you know, I guess, well, let's call this a, man, a sacrament from now on, you know? All right, excellent. So so how does this work? So what I want to talk about is, first of all, uh, okay, so let me just, what is a sacrament? What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a snapshot of something in the life of Christ that gets perpetuated through history. So... Imagine if the story was Jesus, you know, he, he came among us. He walked, he preached, he taught, he forgave sins, he healed the sick, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, he, uh, he hung out with us for 40 days, then he ascended into heaven, and now he's in heaven. What if that was the story? It'd be, it'd be kind of sad. Right? It's like, well, well, why wasn't I born 2,000 years ago? You know? Like, we have to discover time travel. Because otherwise, we missed out the most important thing that ever happened in the history of humanity. And we missed it. You know? Forget Dune 2. Forget, you know, all these other great things that are going to happen this year. We missed the coming of the Son of God in our midst. And so the Catholic Church says, well, that's not the story. The story is, hey, you walk died for our sins, he resurrected from the dead, he hung out with us for 40 days, he ascended into heaven, and his presence is perpetuated in our midst through the sacraments of the church. So that I can actually go and sit at table with Jesus and touch him and receive him. And I, I can actually have my own sins forgiven by Jesus. I didn't have to live in the year, you know, 32. I actually can have Jesus forgive my sins. It's awesome. Yeah. So what is that? That's what we call the sacraments. The sacraments are like a snapshot of Jesus, something in the life of Jesus, some event in the life of Jesus, some power, some mystery in the life of Jesus. That's what the word sacrament means. It literally just means mystery. Some mystery in the life of Jesus that gets perpetuated and carried on in history. So far, so good? Yeah. It's like the Harry Potter pictures. You know how they like wave at you? Yeah. It's kind of like that. It's like a scene from the life of Christ that gets like somehow, magically, mysteriously, through the Holy Spirit, carried and perpetuated in history. Yeah? So we know the Eucharist, we know confession, we're going to talk about marriage. What is 
the mystery of the life of Christ that gets perpetuated in marriage. Marriage. Yeah. <laughs> I've always wanted to do a homily like that. Always, always, always. Yeah. I've resisted a couple times. Uh, one day I might just get it. So yeah. take your risk. You ask me to do it. So in order to explain the sacraments, the mystery of marriage that Jesus perpetuates, we need to like understand what marriage is in the Bible. Okay. And I'm going to explain that through a three-part story. Yeah, and it kind of it does have a point. So three acts. Okay, act one is the creation of the world. Pope Francis in 2015, when he was in Philadelphia, they asked him. Well, so he was going to give the final spiel for it was the the world gathering of families. And I was there, and uh, we were all lined up in the streets, and we had the little screens, you know. And Pope Francis sitting in his chair, and his secretary comes up and gives him the prepared text, right? In very Pope Francis style, he takes the text, he looks at it, he gives it back to the attendant, and he just starts, like, riffing, right? <laughs> and as he's riffing, he starts off by saying, you know, a little boy once asked me, what was God doing before the creation of the world? And I answered him, maybe not very theologically precise, says the Pope, that before the creation of the world, God was in love. God was loving God was love inside of his heart between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is a relationship of love. That's what God was doing before the beginning of the world. He was love. He was in love. He was loving and he was being loved. And creation was his desire to be able to place this love, to share this love with someone else. That's creation. Yeah, To transmit this love. To share this love. Why? Because we all know love always wants to share. It always wants to go out. Right? If you love somebody, if you have a friend, you know, it doesn't need to be the love of your life, but if you have a friend and you discover, like, this new restaurant or something, right, you, like, call them up or call her up. Yeah, I just discovered this new place. It's amazing. Yeah. We should definitely go. Yeah? <laughs> so that's what love does, right? Like, today someone told me, you know, about this new sushi place. What's it called? Yukaro or something? Yeah, whatever it's called, right? Like, you gotta go check it out, right? It's got like the cool Japanese thing, you know, the little robot that comes. And, right? So, like, love, friendship always wants to share. It always wants to give. Sorry. So, God creates the world, and he goes from bigger and less important to smaller and more important. You follow me? So first he creates the light, and he creates the darkness, and then he creates the earth and the waters, and then he creates the continents, and then he creates, like, well, he creates the moon and the sun, then he creates the continents, and he creates the vegetation. And it goes from, like, gigantic to smaller, right? Because the universe, like, planets are bigger than humans, but they're less important, right? And then little by little, he finally gets to the crown of creation, humans. Yeah? So what's the last thing that's created in the Bible? Eve. Eve. Yeah, Eve, some say humanity, right? So some say, well, the uh, God created Adam and then he created Eve. Does that mean the woman came, you know, last? Some people love that because, you know, the last is like the perfection. Some people hate that because Eve was created after Adam. It doesn't actually matter, right? There's two ways of thinking about it. Besides, Adam, Adam doesn't even mean man. Adam means humanity and Eve means mother, right? So Ish and Isha, John Paul II actually says, you can think about creation as God creates like undifferentiated humanity, and then he differentiates humanity into man and woman, right? 
It doesn't matter because the last thing God created was not Eve. The last thing God created was marriage. He takes Eve and he presents Eve to Adam. And Adam goes, whoa, this is amazing. You know, this is the best thing that ever happened. Bone in my bones, flesh in my flesh, right? And the two become one. And so for the very first time, that love relationship that exists inside of God, it can now exist outside of God. Capiche? Yeah? So the crown of creation is the family. Yeah? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah? Whether we get married or not one day, we all came from a family. It was the crown of creation. It's the place, this relationship, this community of people, persons, where love could exist in some analogous way to the way that it exists in the heart of God. And they were super happy. And what did God tell Adam and Eve? He said, go, multiply, you know, turn the wasteland into a garden. Yeah? Like, knock yourselves out. Right? And they're like, yes, this is going to be awesome. You know? And they're in total bliss. And they have no sin, and they have no sadness, and they have no depression, and no anxiety, and no bills, and no taxes. And no PTO. I mean, you know, they, they don't even need to ask for PTO. They just go wherever they want. Right? It's, like, it's the best. Yeah, God created us to have the joy of his heart and to be in bliss. Alright, curtain closes, act one is over, everyone's like, wow, this is amazing, you know, like popcorn, you know, uh, refill, you know, you go back, you sit down, and act two is about to begin. Yeah? Actually, we have some actors from, uh, you guys watch The Garden? Yes. Yeah. Isn't The Garden awesome? Yeah. Oh, Garden, yeah. applause for The Garden. <laughs> act two starts. In Act 2, we all know, is the devil, right? Enemy, sin. So the devil comes up to the family. Yeah? The devil comes up to the family, the original marriage. And the devil says, hey, how you doing? And he was like, I'm great. <laughs> and he says, you know, did God really say you couldn't do anything? She's like, no, no, no. God said we could do everything. But what we can't do is take the fruit from this particular thing. And the devil says, well, like, what if God changes his mind? I never thought of it. Yeah, I mean, like, God gave you everything, right? But, like, what if he takes it away? And he was like, you know, I have a way of fixing it. If you take this, and you claim the power of God for yourself, you'll never have to worry about God taking this bliss. And Eve says, that sounds like a great idea. So she takes the fruit, she eats it, she gives it to her husband, Adam. They both eat the fruit. You know, they lead each other into sin. It's terrible. And then immediately what happens? It's the first thing that Adam and Eve do. They yeah, they, they clothe themselves, right? They're like, Aah. They were naked before then. No problem being naked. Yeah. By the way, I'm not advocating anything, right? <laughs> but why did they not have a problem being naked? Because they looked at each other and they wanted nothing but to serve one another. So they didn't mind being totally vulnerable. They didn't mind. But the moment that they sinned, Adam, he now has like kind of dark thoughts in his mind. And he looks at Eve, he's like, I could really take advantage of Eve. 
And Eve looks at Adam and says, I can really take advantage of Adam. And they know that thought in their own mind, and, and Adam's thinking, I have this thought in my mind. I wonder if Eve has this thought in her mind. And she, they look at each other in their eyes, they're like, oh, you have this thought in your mind, don't you? And they're like, excuse me. They turn around, and they make those things. Yeah. I thought they were hiding from God. First, they hide from one another. That's the dark part. Yeah. The dark part is the very first thing that happens after they disobey God. There's a wedge in between Adam and Eve. Yeah. Then God comes around. He's like, Hey, Adam, where are you? You know. And Adam and Eve hide. Like we do not want God to see us. Yeah. God calls Adam and says, hey Adam, what happened? You know? What's going on? Nice clothes. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and what does Adam say? Literally, what does Adam say? First words out of his mouth are, and catch the subtext. He says, well, the woman you gave me gave me that fruit to eat. What he's really saying is like, you should have thought about this before you put her in the garden. You know? <laughs> Like, whose fault is it? <laughs> you know, it's either hers or yours. And then Eve, you know, who was just thrown under the bus by Adam, says, you know, well, this guy who you put in the garden, he gave it to me. God gives them different clothes. They leave the garden. Death enters. They have two kids. Anyone know the name of Adam and Eve's first two kids? Cain and Abel. You guys remember what happened to Cain and Abel? Cain, Cain literally killed Abel. Yeah, the two brothers. Like, family history is a mess for all of us. You know? And then, and then Abel, you know, everyone wants to kill Cain after that, and God, like, protects Cain, right? Because God's not into this revenge thing. And then Cain goes off, and he has kids, and he has grandkids. And Cain's grandson, Lamech, he's the first one to have two wives. Yeah, because he's like, uh... I'll take two, you know? It's like, what? Yeah. And then, uh, it's like Iron Man when he eats uh, Black Widow for the first time. He, he, he says the same thing. He's like, I want two. Yeah. Uh, so, they, uh, and then what happens after that? Well, what does it mean that one man wants two women? It means that women are now half as important. If it's one to two, it's like, you're worth half as much. And that just keeps on spiraling. And the Old Testament is literally the destruction of this family that just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. The devil knew exactly what he was doing. He attacked the highest point of creation because he knew that after that, everything else would come. And, you know, it's a mess on all sides. Wars and destruction and everything else. You know, even our heroes like King David... You know, I mean, he had an affair, then he killed the husband of the woman, and he had a bunch of wives, and all their kids fought with one another, they tried to kill him. You know, the great wise King Solomon had like hundreds of concubines. You know, I mean, it's kind of a mess. The Old Testament is a total mess. Yeah, and those echoes obviously like resound in our heart because that's our family. And so we kind of, uh, you know, Act Two, you know, Act Two ends, and it's like all the nations are in war. And we're like, oh man, well, Act 2 was rough, right? I hope this has a happy ending. Act 3. Act 3 opens up. What is Act 3? 
act we as like, yeah, Jesus, right? So it's like the return of the Jedi, you know? The return of the <laughs> king, right? A good part three, you know? It's amazing. Who came up with this stuff, right? So, act three, but this is what I want to talk to you about. This is, this is why this is so important. Act three. So, what does redemption mean? What does redemption mean? Have you ever thought about that? Like, we all say, ah, I've been redeemed, right? But is redemption just that, like, is it that I know now how I'm supposed to behave? Like, I didn't know how I'm supposed to behave, but now I know how I'm supposed to behave. Is that redemption? Or is redemption, I knew how I was supposed to behave, but I just really can't do it. And so I need, like, some type of, like, inner power to be able to do what I know I'm supposed to do. Or is redemption that... I know what I'm supposed to do. I really am able to do it, but I have like all this kind of sin on my history book or something, you know, that someone put on there, and it just keeps on accumulating. And I kind of need someone else to put all this sin on top and then take it away so I can finally be free. Or is redemption like there's this community, you know, we're all going to heaven together, and like redemption is I get to be part of this community, so we all go to heaven together, you know, the community called the church. All right, redemption is all those things. <clears throat> And more. But what I want to explain is redemption specifically as Jesus making all things new, especially renewing God's original plan for the very highest point of his creation. So just like the devil attacked the highest point of creation, so Jesus is coming to refashion the highest point of creation, which is marriage. All right. Remember, what we're getting to is what's the mystery of the life of Christ that gets copied and pasted on to every single Catholic marriage. Okay? You with me? This is like high theology, right? I mean, kind of like, this is your first theology class probably in a while. Yeah? Deacon Abraham's there, by the way. He's another legionnaire of Christ in my community. He's going to be ordained a priest on April 27th. This talk is too late for you, Deacon Abraham. No. <laughs> so, so Jesus is going to refashion that for him, redemption is refashioning. Refashioning marriage. Okay? So, in order to understand that, what's the first thing that Jesus does when he appears on the scene? <clears throat> He's born in a family. He spends 30 years hanging out with his family. Just think about that for a second. 30 out of 33 years. We have some consultants in our midst. (laughs) Jesus has the most important job to carry out. Every single word he says is like dripping with grace. And he's going to spend 10 elevenths of his time just living in a family. Seems like a waste. You know? I mean, imagine if Jesus had spent one more year with us. We would have had so many more parables. It'd be awesome, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like the parable of the young adults. <laughs> <laughs> the parable of the dating girl, you know? <laughs> the parable of the heartbroken kid. You know, like, Lord, you could have taught us so much. <laughs> One more year of preaching, you know? And yet, he didn't do that. 
whenever you have to decide between Jesus making a mistake and you making a mistake, probably you're making a mistake. Yeah? <laughs> like, either he's wrong or I'm wrong. Probably I'm wrong. You know? Odds are very high. I'm wrong. <laughs> so Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. For 30 years, all he did was hang out with the family. What is he trying to tell us? His first mission is refashioning a family and redignifying a family and reconstructing the family. Okay? After that, what's the first thing that he does? Next for one. After 30 years of hanging out with his family. Yeah, by the way, that's why they say you know Jesus is Italian. Because <laughs> he had long hair, he lived with his mom until he was 30, and he thought he was God. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Any Italians here? I just want to affirm you. I, I lived in Italy. I love Italy. <laughs> so, so, so Jesus begins, right? He begins his ministry, and the first thing he does in his ministry, the very first miracle, imagine that, it's like his opening act, right? Humanity has been waiting for this guy forever, all of you know, Everybody wants to see him. The prophets have been like stoned and killed and exiled and everything else, right? And finally Jesus appears. And it's like, Lord, redeem us. And he shows up in a way. And he creates 908 bottles of the best wine. Because it's 30 gallons times 6. It's 180 gallons. You can multiply, convert that into liters, divide by 0.75. And it's 908 bottles of the best wine. That's what he does. He doesn't give the sermon of the wine, you know? He doesn't, like, heal the, you know, the mother-in-law, you know? That's why they say Peter actually, you know, denied Jesus three times. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's not true. That's not why Jesus denied Peter. Peter denied. So, the, uh, so he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, like... Elevate the dignity of the kitchen staff, you know, at the wedding. Uh, he doesn't. What does he do? You know, he doesn't heal it. He doesn't raise someone from the dead. He literally just gives a newlywed couple who had run out of wine more wine. That's it. He doesn't explain it. He just walks away. <laughs> like a total boss, you know? And this is like the coolest God ever, you know? He, what does Jesus love? Yeah, fuck, he loves wine. Okay, but no, he, what, no. What does Jesus love? He loves the newlywed couple. He loves the love of the newlywed couple. And he saw them in trouble. And he planned this from all eternity, so it's not just like it happened. He wanted his opening act to be a reminder of how much God loves a marriage. With everything that wine represents, laughter and romance and joy. That's what it is. I have a French friend of mine over here. Wine, right? That's what wine represents. Yeah, I'm too. Yeah. He's dating my cousin, by the way. So. <laughs> All right. So that's the first. What, what else does Jesus do to redeem marriage? Yeah. Well, he does several things. The first thing he does, which is super clear, is he absolutely eradicates divorce. Did you notice that? 
He's the only religious leader in the history of humanity. And they've all said great things, right? Like, Muhammad has said some great things, and Confucius has said some really interesting things, and the Buddha has said some interesting things, you know? The only religious leader to bring back exclusive, lifelong commitment between two people, between a man and a woman, Like, well, Moses said, he's like, no. But Moses, nope. You know? He's like, well, in the beginning, Jesus himself says, well, in the beginning, that wasn't the point. Do you know what Peter, the first pope, says when Jesus says, no divorce? Literally, Peter says, well, if that's the case, it's better not to get married. You should all read the Bible more. Yeah? <laughs> You're like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I've never learned this in Bible study. Yeah. <laughs> Peter, Peter's realistic. And you know what Jesus responds? He says, no, Peter, it's a gift. It's a gift. What else does Jesus do? Jesus says, Peter, Peter again, asks Jesus, hey, how many times are we supposed to forgive one another? How many times are we supposed to forgive? Is it seven times per day? And what does Jesus answer? We all know. It depends because the Greek is not clear. So it's either 77 times per day or 70 times seven times per day. It doesn't really matter. What he means is like, always. But who are you going to be able to forgive 70 times seven per day? Raise your hands if you have a roommate. <laughs> okay, you might come close. <laughs> you might come close. But realistically, the only person you're going to be able to forgive 70 times, 7 times a day is the person you end up marrying. Am I right? True. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Max and Rich. Yeah. The only person you're going to see that much, the only person that's going to touch the deepest fibers of your soul is the person you end up spending the rest of your life. And if you're not willing to forgive them 70 times 7, that's why 50% of marriages don't work. What else does Jesus do? Jesus forgives adultery. Right? Everyone thinks, well, I mean, you can be faithful until adultery. Right? I mean, that's just that's where we draw the line, right? Jesus forgives the woman caught in adultery. Jesus has let the children come to him. What did the Romans do? They didn't like some, you know? Romans had a really, really kind of licentious attitude to relationships. You know, the father of the household would frequently have kids with his wife and his concubine and the servants, you know. So the result was there were all these kids that nobody wanted. So the Romans had a, a methodology for this, which is they would take the kids and they would expose them outside the city. That's why, have you guys seen, uh, like, the, the story of Ramus, Romulus and Remus? It's like a she-wolf with the two little babies underneath, you know. Like, what's the she-wolf doing with two little kids, you know? You ever wonder? Well, the myth is these two kids were exposed, that's what's called abandoned, exposed to nature. And the she-wolf came and, like, took care of them, right? So Jesus, the Jews had already said, no human sacrifice, no baby sacrifice, right? No exposing kids. But Jesus says, no, not just that, let the children come to So what's the final thing that Jesus is missing? to make his refashioning of marriage whole again. The one thing that's missing is, is it possible to love until death? Yeah? Can you really love someone for the rest of your life? Yeah? If you're in, 
think about engagement, if you're married, you know, before you're married, you're kind of thinking that, right? Like, am I really going to be able to love this person? Like, for the rest of my life? That's a long time. You know, a lot of things are going to happen before that. Yeah? Gray hairs, broken knees, back pain, you know, uh, surgeries. Who knows what I'm going to be thinking when I'm 75, you know? Is it possible to love until death? And what is Jesus saying? He says, watch me. And like a boss, he dies on the cross. He's faithful until he's no longer breathing. And it was like, he did. He did. He pulled it off. He was faithful until the end. John, the beloved disciple, who put his head on the chest of Jesus and listened to him, writes of Jesus. He is the bride. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says, I rejoice at the voice of the bridegroom coming for his bride. And the book of Revelation, written by John, the bride, the church, is coming to meet the bridegroom at the very end. All that to say that Jesus, the mystery of the life of Jesus, of marriage, he embodies himself. And he says, I'm going to refashion marriage, ultimately, by myself becoming the bridegroom of the church. The mystery of marriage the sacrament of marriage, the mystery. Sacrament just means mystery. Mystery just means sacrament. The mystery of marriage, the sacrament of marriage, is participating in the very energy and love and self-giving of Jesus, who's become the bridegroom of the church. And refashion. So far, so good? Mm-hmm. Okay, any questions up to this point? <clears throat> I yes. Um, going back to the first yeah. Um, I don't know if I have it. I think it's Mary asked to do that, right? Yes. So could you say that he was also revivifying the woman by making his first miracle and that's the way it's for his mother? Yeah, actually, Jesus and Mary at that moment are kind of Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just like Eve leads Adam to sin, Mary leads Jesus to redemption. So it's very, very explicit the connection between Genesis and John 2, that wedding at Canaan. Notice, we don't even know the names of the bridegroom, the, the, the original couple, you know? Uh, unless you watch The Chosen, in which case. So yeah, it's very explicit, the connection, which makes it even more clear what Jesus is doing. Yeah, Jesus is going back to heal Adam and Eve. That's what he most wants to do. And if you want another biblical reference, which is really cool, when... After the resurrection, there's a couple that leaves Jerusalem and they're on their way to... What's the name of the town? Emmaus. They're on their way to Emmaus. Yeah, the, the couple. And uh, they're arguing with one another. Do you guys remember the name of that couple? No? Yes, very good. Cleopas is one, is, is one of them. And the other one, we don't know their name. Very good. All you Bible studies, they're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> So we don't know the other name. So the only other time that the term that the name Cleopas appears in the gospel, you know where it is? The only other time that Cleopas or Cleophas appears in the Bible? No. Passion. At the foot of the cross in the Passion. Because Mary, the wife of Cleopas, is in front of Jesus during the crucifixion. Yeah? 
Like, basically everyone in the New Testament is called Mary. No. So, <laughs> Mary, not Mary, but the other Mary, you know? So anyway, Mary, the wife of Cleopas at the cross. Cleopas is walking down from the thing. Probably it's Cleopas and Mary, after the resurrection, have left Jerusalem, and they're on their way to Emmaus. And Jesus appears to a couple and brings them back to Jerusalem. Yeah? It's pretty cool. Again, what's Jesus doing? He's redeeming the family. He's redeeming specifically marriage as the originating point of the family. Yes? Going back to um, the disciples' question, Jesus, it's better not to marry. Yeah. The first thing they ask is, or the first thing Jesus says, and then I had to look it up too, he says, not everyone can accept that word. Yeah. And then also, in like, um, I want to say maybe Romans, yeah. Paul even mentions, I wish everyone were like me. And then he goes on to explain, but, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah. So, what about those caveats? Yeah, so in that, in Matthew 19, yes. yeah, Jesus says, uh, not everyone can accept this word. Some, and he goes, to, he starts talking about eunuchs. Yeah, you guys know what a eunuch is? A eunuch in the Old Testament is someone that's castrated. Yeah. So they can't have kids. So he says, some are eunuchs by nature, some are eunuchs made by man, and some are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. And then he says, whoever can understand this ought to do it. And that whoever can understand this is phrased in such a way that it's not clear if it's referring to eunuchs or to marriage. So what Jesus is doing, what the church has interpreted there is saying, Jesus is referring to both marriage and celibacy, as a gift from himself. Yeah? And then in Romans, when St. Paul's talking, I wish everyone looked like this, he actually says, hey, by the way, this doesn't come from Jesus, this comes from me. Yeah? The interesting thing there is, talking about the priesthood, the priesthood is not that different from married life. In the sense that the priesthood, the reason priests don't get married is because they're already married to the church. And just like Christ is the bridegroom of the church. The priesthood is the mystery, the mystery of Christ serving his church. And marriage is the mystery of Jesus united to his church. Isn't that cool? Yeah? Is that clear? This is like deep stuff, by the way. Yeah? It's like, congratulations, all of you, for listening to theology on a Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. So... So those are the mysteries of the life of Christ that each of these sacraments perpetuates in time. Yeah, that's why when you go to ordain a priest, you become a deacon first because the priesthood is kneeling before the church and marriage is uniting to the church. Yeah. Which means every married couple has the power within them of Jesus uniting himself to the church. So far, so good? Okay. How do married couples tap into this? This is really exciting. Okay? This is really exciting. Some of you probably heard me say this before you get married. You probably forgot you heard a lot. This this is this is probably gonna blow your minds. Okay? So I'm a priest. No. <laughs> I'm a priest. All of you who have been baptized are also Priest, prophet, and king. Priest, prophet, and king. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> right? Like, when was the last time you thought of yourself as a king? Yeah? Am 
Max is like, since I was great, I'm definitely not a king. <laughs> when, or when was the last time you thought of yourself as a prophet? You know? When was the last time you thought of yourself as a priest? What does that even mean? I'm going to, I, I'm going to explain to you what that means. It means the following. If we were 2,500 years ago, and we were lucky enough to be Jewish, and you wanted your prayers to be heard because you accidentally broke the leg of your neighbor's ox or something, you know? Or because you defiled yourself on the Sabbath, or because you lied, or because you sinned, or you committed adultery, or whatever. And you needed to pray, you needed to make a sacrifice in reparation, what are your options? You don't have that many. You have to find a Levite. You have to give him a couple shekels. You have to probably give him a little like lamb or two turtle doves or a little you know selection of wheat and your your first you know your first crops or something, right? You give it to the Levite and then you wait. And the Levite he walks to the temple. He goes into the temple, he goes to the altar, he keeps the shackles, he <laughs> slaughters the lamb. Well, I mean, he's got he's to eat, right? He slaughters the lamb, he pours the blood out, he burns the fat, he eats some of the lamb himself, he brings back the lamb, he gives you the piece of the lamb that he's supposed to give back to you, and he says, Natalie, your prayers have been answered. God has accepted the sacrifice. You are now back in union and communion with God. Congratulations. Hold the applause till the end. <laughs> so, that's how you would pray. Why would you have to pray like that? Because the Levites are the priests. You can't just talk to God. Who do you think you are? Pete. You have to go to the people who have been proclaimed as priests by God. In the New Testament, through baptism, well, in the New Testament, Jesus appears on the scene and he says, I am the high priest from now on. Yeah? That's one of the reasons why the Jews were like, did he just say that? <laughs> He's like, I'm the high priest in an order that goes way before the Levites. I'm the high priest in the Roman whatever. What does that mean? It means that he's the bridge between God and us. That's who Jesus is. It's amazing. He's the best. Not only that, he's not like a jealous older brother, like me sometimes, you know? We're going to go here for lunch. No, I'm kidding. Uh, he's an older brother that likes to share everything with his younger brothers and sisters. And so his priesthood, he shares it with us through baptism. So that from the moment of baptism... I don't have to find a Levite. I don't even have to find a Catholic priest. <coughs> I myself can walk into the altar in the middle of my soul because I've made, been made a temple of the Holy Spirit. Am I right? And I say my prayers to God inside of my heart and he listens to them and then I come back and I'm back to my social self. Yeah? That's what it means to be a priest. All of you who are baptized are priests in that way. That's awesome. All of you have a dignity of communicating directly with God because you're priests. All right. Who is the minister? Have you guys heard this term before? 
Who is the minister? The church teaches something really interesting. The minister of the sacrament of the Eucharist. Priests and bishops. Yeah? What does minister mean? If you guys are Protestant or came from a Protestant background, minister is your priest, right? If you had to explain it to a Catholic, yeah? Who's your minister? Well, he's kind of like our priest, you know? Minister means servant, it means priest. So the minister of the sacrament of the Eucharist is a priest. I get to say the sacrament of the Eucharist. Who's the minister of the sacrament of confession? The priest or the bishop. Who's the minister of the sacrament of marriage? The couple. The couple. The spouses. We kind of know that in theory. I'm going to finally explain to you what that means. What that means is the following. Since I'm a priest, I get to do something really cool, which is I get to take a piece of bread, and I get to say, this is my body. Notice, pay attention next time you go to Mass, the priest does not say, this is Jesus' body. He says, this is my body. Wait. Does that become Father JP's body? No. One hundred percent, it becomes Jesus's body. But the priest says, "This is my body." He doesn't say, "This is Jesus's body." Okay. Hold that thought for a second. When you go to confession and you're hiding behind the screen, and it's back to cathedral, and you get your sins out as fast as you can because there's a really long line behind you. <laughs> And the priest has learned his lesson and gives you short and advice that's straight to the point. <laughs> and the priest gives you absolution. He do- he says, I forgive you your sins in the name of the... Da-da-da-da. He doesn't say, Jesus forgives you your sins. It's not, I forgive you your sins, Pete, you owe me one. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like... I like sushi. Yeah? No, it's, I forgive you your sins, but what it means is, Jesus forgives you your sins. How is that even possible? What does that mean? It means that in the sacraments, Jesus and me, together, are speaking these words. This is my body. For that moment. It's amazing. And the sacrament happens. When I give absolution, Jesus and me together say these words. I forgive you your sins. And your sins are forgiven. You see what happens? Jesus and me are acting together. And the effect is much greater than what I could do. Because I personally can't forgive anyone's sins. In marriage, Rachel was standing here. And Max was standing here. And Rachel said, I, Rachel, take you, Max. And then there's like two different options, you know, to love and to cherish, good times and bad, da da da. Those words at that moment are sacramental words. That's the sacramental form of the sacrament of marriage. What that means is, you. And Jesus get to say to your spouse, your future spouse, your spouse in the making, I will be faithful to you 
in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, da 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 And then your spouse and Jesus say to you, I take you to be my wife, husband, whatever, you know? In good times and in bad, da 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 Think about that for just a second. What it means is that in the sacrament of marriage, from the moment that you say those words, God lives inside of your soul as love for your spouse. Yeah? So that every single thing you do for your spouse, it's not just you loving your spouse. It's you and Jesus loving your spouse. You give a cup of coffee, it's Max and Jesus giving us a cup of coffee to Rachel. Yeah? Here's another cup of coffee. You tap him on the shoulder. It's Rachel and Jesus tapping Max on the shoulder. If I tap Max on the shoulder, it's just Father JP. (laughs) But if Rachel taps Max on the shoulder, it's Rachel and Jesus tapping Max on the shoulder. Woo! <laughs> Spicy. <laughs> That's the mystery of marriage. The mystery of marriage is that God so loved the world and he so loved spousal love that he doesn't just stand by and kind of sprinkle a little grace and make it holy but he actually enters into the heart of spouses permanently to be their love for one another. What love? The love of forgiving sins? No. The love of initiating into divine life through baptism? No. The love that drove him to the cross to be united to his church. That power exists in the heart of a spouse who's been married in the church. Towards everybody? No. Towards their spouse. Does that make sense? Yes. Does that kind of blow your minds a little bit? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Kathleen? How does that work with sin? How does that work with sin? Very good question. So, another way of visualizing this, and then we'll explain sin. Another way of visualizing this, Inside of the spouse's hearts, there's like a well that's created from the moment you say those vows. That's why marriage can't be undone. By the way, I'll get to sin in just a second. That's why marriage can't be undone. Because I can change my mind. I can be like, well, yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> you know? or, or you hurt me or whatever, right? And maybe I can start turning away from this. But God promised that he was going to be faithful to you. And God just can't change his mind. Why doesn't God change his mind? Because what he says happens. Yeah. When God said, let there be light, there was simply light. Right? No one could argue with him. No, no, no. Well, it's too expensive to create light nowadays. You know? There's no <laughs> resistance. It just happens. Yeah? Taxes, you know? How much light? No. So, in this situation, God said, I'm going to love you forever. He's going to be loving you forever inside your heart towards your spouse. 
Okay. So it's like this well is created inside your heart. A well that goes all the way down to the Trinity. Yeah? Inside your heart of love for your spouse. You can always go down there and take it. Sin. There's little sin and there's big sin. And there's everything in the middle. Sin, you can visualize it as sin against your spouse, is like boarding up the well. Yeah? Letting the sign, you know? Peter's married here as well, right? Nikki, right? The sign's like, you know? Vines are like crawling up or something. The well itself can be filled with junk. And so, you get to go, and when you do a good confession, and through hard work sometimes of repairing the relationship, you start ripping off those boards. But the moment you rip off the boards and you look in the well, the water is as clear as it was on day one. Yeah. That's the grace of love that you now receive for your spouse. Yeah. In the last three weeks, for some reason I've ended up talking to couples who are dating, not Catholic, or not, you know, practicing their Catholic faith, who want to enter into non-exclusive relationships. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Run that by me one more time, right? <laughs> and then I discovered it's really kind of not that rare. Yeah? It's a concession to our lust. One of the couples was actually like, well, the thing is, I don't want our marriage to fail. And so I don't want to put this as a condition because I don't want my marriage to fail. I kind of know it's going to happen. And so let's just establish the rules from the beginning so that we'll continue to be together no matter what happens, right? That's what I mean about like a sadness and a cynicism about whether or not love is possible. Yeah? As faith declines, faith in love also declines. And the good news, the great news, is that God comes to rescue human love. Yeah? To free it from sin. How does it work with sin? This love in the heart of a spouse is like, it's like you're tilting the scales towards love. You're still free. Peter's still free to be like, ah, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Just like me. Just like you. Just like you. <laughs> He's still free to say, you know what, today I'm just going to be really mean. Yeah? Sure. But inside, there's a grace that's always pushing him to love his wife. In visible and in invisible ways. In conscious and subconscious ways. Yeah. It's like when you close your eyes and dream, the dreams that appear are pushing you to love your wife. Why? Because God placed that love in the very center of your soul. And you can't you can't undo it. Uh, I mean, I, I have seen everything possible in marriage. There's a couple that I know, and when they first got married, within the first couple of years, they were both, you know, very worldly, worldly, you know, relationships with a bunch of other people, whatever, you know. 15 years into their marriage, they both have this big conversion in Colombia, and they both decide to start being faithful. Yeah? And they decide, they have like this thing, they go on this retreat, it touches their lives, you know? 
and they start receiving the Eucharist every single day. Yeah, they're like, yeah, we really want this to, to continue. Yeah, we really want to serve and love. Yeah. Their son is about to be ordained a priest one year after Deacon Abraham. Because he saw his family. He's like, look what God's able to do. This is amazing. Yeah, and he felt his calling. And he's like, can't wait to go and do this for others. My parents' best friends, they uh, they went from non-practicing Catholics to practicing evangelicals. Yeah, So we can have, that can be the next discipleship topic. <laughs> How does that work? Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, my mom, who's you know a psychic or just really listens to the Holy Spirit, one of the two, probably the probably both. I don't know. No? Probably the latter. She uh, she decides to call this girl one time. Yeah. So they're like best friends with my parents. They've been married for 18 years. My mom decides to call. She's like, hey, I was just thinking about you, praying for you. And she goes, let me tell you what happened. They had just converted to being evangelicals, and they decided that they both wanted to be honest with one another, have no secrets. So she says to him, you know, 12 years ago, I, on a business trip, I slipped, and I had an affair. But I love you, and I really want our marriage to work out, and I want us to be together, and blah, 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 blah. I promise, let's, let's make this work, let's make this work. A week later, the husband goes to the wife. It's like eight months ago. I had an affair with your best friend. Boom, explosion, you know? She goes to live with her mother. <laughs> but I really love you and I really want this to work out. And blah, 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 blah. Long story short, they reconcile. They decide to really live their faith. They forgive one another. They keep on loving one another. And you see them now? My siblings know them. He's always like dressed. They're both dressed to the nines. They look like a high school sweethearts. They love each other so much. They've been married now like 40 some years. You know, they have three daughters. They have grandkids. Why? Because the power of the sacrament is always available. Like the grace of the sacrament is always available. Yeah. That's what the sacrament of marriage is. It's a huge deal. It's a beautiful deal. It's a wonderful deal. Yeah? It doesn't eradicate our humanity. It doesn't eradicate our freedom. It also requires really good discernment, right? It's not like, well, I don't really like you, but maybe if we get married, then I'll love you with God's love, and it'll be amazing. Yeah? It doesn't actually work like that. Yeah? Because what God enters into is your decision to love your spouse. If that decision to love your spouse forever, exclusively, open to children, is not there, then God has nothing to enter into. Because literally what he's sustaining is your desire to love. Does that make sense? Questions? I have two questions. So one is, um, I know love is an infinite endless. Yeah. God's love is. But is that love procreative? Like, is that the love that unites children to their parents versus to their aunts or uncles? Yeah, no, the sacrament yeah. is love between a husband and a wife. So why don't we have, like, the sacrament of a family? Okay, my other question was, um, how do you address, like, how would you say, as humans, we should deal with, or how can that love come in handy when, through discernment when you have the whole like grass is greener thing, you know? 
Like, I think as humans, we struggle with that, and we probably always will. Like, after marriage or before marriage? Well, maybe after, I feel like. Temptation, right? Yeah. So, but before even discernment, like, how do you... Because you can be rational about things and be like... In your discernment, you can be rational. Because I feel like you shouldn't just be emotional. But maybe people have anxiety or whatever, and yeah. overthink. Yeah. Like, how does that... Yeah, well, just just don't overthink. Just not kidding. No, 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 by its very nature, is specific to the person and the situation. So it's almost impossible. Like only the greatest saints, like Saint Ignatius of Loyola, Saint Teresa of Avila, right, have given rules of discernment. Discernment is always particular to this decision that I must make. Yeah. So I would say maybe to that, I'd say, well, discernment ends in decision. And that's very important. If you catch yourself discerning kind of in perpetuity, you're doing something wrong. Yeah? It doesn't mean it's a yes or no. It just means that the process needs to like lead to what is my next step. Yeah? Then in marriage and in religious life as well, it's very important, you know, because sometimes people are like, what if God calls me to be a priest, you know? That's terrifying. You know, like, I'm madly in love with this girl, but what if God, you know? And I, and I, I might be, I don't want to make it sound like I'm mocking that because, you know, we've all been there in some way or another, right? But God speaks through your heart also, right? So if you love somebody and you're falling in love with somebody, I would say this, to fall in love, the more you know them, the more you love them. The more you love them, the more you know them, the more you know them, the more you love them. Those are the relationships that lead to potentially marriage. Yeah? That's kind of the dynamic. And the same with the religious life. The more I approach, the more I'm excited, the more I'm excited, the more I'm approached. Even if you're afraid. Yeah, fear is a human reaction, is a human response to the unknown. Yeah? And it's, it's true. To marry somebody is to not marry four billion people. Yeah? So, you gotta make sure, you know, that can be scary, right? What if one of those four billion people is better than this one? (laughs) I mean, mathematically, it's almost scientifically impossible to prove, right? That's why, to be rational about marriage, I'd say you wanna be reasonable, but you can't really be scientific. Yeah. I, I know a guy who uh, read a book about hiring a secretary. And apparently the best way to hire a secretary is you decide how many people you want to interview. Okay? Let's say you're willing to spend time interviewing 30 people. Then you interview the first 10 and you rate them. And then you interview the second 10. And as soon as someone goes higher than the first the highest person, the first 10, that's the person you want to hire. Okay? That's that's the most rational way of hiring a secretary. Okay? A guy was telling me one time that he wanted to find a wife that way. <laughs> yeah? He was so frustrated in the dating scenes. He's like, we need to figure this out rationally. Yeah? So anyway, it doesn't work that way. Did that answer your question? Okay.
Okay, any other questions? Yes, Theo. Uh, when a couple gets a divorce, uh, yeah. how does God continue to fulfill his promise through the other person to you, or does that just not happen because the person is not facilitating that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. When divorce occurs, so here, notice the following. When God exists in my heart as sanctifying love, as love towards someone else, I benefit not just from the other person loving me, but also from being a channel of love towards the other person. Yeah? So, you're married, you get to love your wonderful wife, you pick up love from the well, and you're kind of carrying it, you know, to Kelly. In that process, you're spilling love all over yourself. Really, I know this is like, what? Right? How do, what are you talking about, right? What that means is you're a channel of God's love for your wife. Yeah? That being a channel of God's love means that I'm connecting to God. And I'm learning from God. I'm paying attention to God. And I'm receiving from God. And my own heart is changing and becoming more and more generous to my wife. Yeah? So you are sanctified and you are loved by God, which is the same thing, not just from your spouse loving you, but from you loving your spouse. When divorce happens, and you guys understand the difference between divorce and annulment? Yes. Yeah? Do you need like a 30-second explanation of that? Maybe. We'll get to that in a second. If divorce happens and the other person just, they grow apart, or through addiction, you can't keep on living together, or something happens, right? The other person just leaves. You can still, through your love for your spouse, through speaking well of them to your kids, through being kind when they come back and ask you for help, through <coughs> praying for them, through co-parenting, through co-grandparenting, whatever the case may be, every act of love, even in silence, that you do towards your spouse is also the presence of God inside your soul. Yeah, and I know some super, super holy divorce people. Super holy. Yeah, because love continues to sanctify them, even though their spouse is absent. And in a very real way, marriage, as it grows, as two people grow in intimacy with one another and become one, they realize, they both realize, that they love each other, but that God's love for them is really what ultimately fulfills them. Yeah. Over time, married couples realize, I was, I was working with a, with a group of couples that meets every month, and yeah, they've been married like three years, and they've had some kids, and you know, and so I was telling, I was kind of explaining this point, right, how the myth is that your spouse completes you, but your spouse doesn't really complete you. Yeah, sorry. Yeah? Why doesn't your spouse complete you? Because we weren't made to be completed by another person. The spouse loves you, accompanies you, caresses you, kisses you, you know, consoles you, encourages you, but it's unfair to expect someone else to complete me. Because the moment they're not completing me, you know, you've seen me do this before, it's like, complete me, you know? <laughs> if I'm not happy, whose fault is it? Your fault, you know? <laughs> that was the deal, right? I would make you happy, you would make me happy. It doesn't work that way, right? So I was saying this to the couples, and one of them who's been married 
as a joke, is like, we should put that over our bed, you know? You don't complete me. <laughs> yeah? And they're, mad, they're, lo- they're super in love. They love each other so much. Yeah? They love each other so much. Yeah. So what was that? Oh, so that's divorce, right? So even in the best of marriages, the love that fulfills you is that presence of God inside of your soul. This explanation of marriage is so important because working with couples, sometimes they tell me, well, you know, we want to get married like on the beat. We're deciding, right? My grandmother really wants to get married in the church, but like, you know, we kind of want to get married on the beach. And, you know, we're, th- we're trying to decide, right? Which of the two? There's pros and cons to both, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, sure. <laughs> like, you can decide to love your spouse with all the love that you have to give. Or you can decide to love your spouse with the uncreated love of God. You know? Do you want to make love to your spouse when it's just them? Or do you want to make love to your spouse when they have the uncreated love of God inside of their heart? And then they're like, oh yeah, maybe we should get married in the church. You know? <laughs> what would that feel like? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's kind of a no-brainer. What do you want to offer your spouse? Do you really just want to offer yourself? I mean, that's pretty brave. I mean, you're awesome, you know? You're awesome, you're cute, you're amazing, you know? You're the only one. But still. Or, you want to offer yourself in God's love and Christ's victory over death. Do you want to love your spouse that way? Because if you do, Christ has a solution for you. It's called the sacrament of marriage. It's pretty awesome. It's like the difference between having a sandwich and receiving the Eucharist. You know? I mean, I love sandwiches. Pub subs? Amazing. You know? Kirkland roast beef is really, really good, too. Right? But what do you want to offer your spouse? Right? It's like the difference between going to therapy and going to confession. I mean, therapy's great. Therapy's great. If you need it, go for it. I've gone to therapy. It's super helpful. But going to confession actually eradicates and erases all your sins. Do you see what I mean? That's why the sacrament of marriage is awesome. And I find, like, we don't even know about this. We normally don't talk about marriage that way. Marriage is a grace that's being offered to spouses so that they can fulfill their promises of loving each other till death do them part. And you know how much it costs? It's only $99.99. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm free on Saturday? No. No, no, I mean, it's, it's free. Like, yeah, you have to pay the, whatever, you know, the, the flower lady or something, you know? But, like, it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to go get a degree. You know, you don't have to get into an Ivy League to be able to do this. It's just on offer from the moment of your baptism. Because God loves you so much. Yeah? Okay, any other questions on this? Is there a sacramental aspect to the Lord just So every single time that you love your spouse, you're activating that presence of God inside of your heart every single time. It's kind of like, there's certain sacraments that just happen once. For example, confession. 
confession, you go in, you get all your sins completely eradicated. Yeah? I told the second graders the other day, the angels look at you and they're like, ah, you know? <laughs> it's too bright, you know? Like, it's kind of painful, you know? But then, 45 seconds later, you know? <laughs> You're like, ah. <laughs> you're walking out the line, you see someone that you know, you're like, yeah, they really need confession. <laughs> Unlike me, I just came to, you know, the dust off my wings, right? So you have to go to confession again, right? The grace was there. Same with communion. You receive the Eucharist, God dwells inside of you, you know, uncreated love is placed on your tongue. Like, hello, right? That's pretty amazing, right? And... But then, you know, you're united to Christ, and then you go out, and you begin to forget, and you're united to other things, and now I'm united to my money, and I'm united to the car that I'm in, united to this party that we're doing, whatever, right? Some sacraments, they happen once, and the effect continues. For example, baptism. You can't be baptized again. You're baptized, and the grace of baptism continues. It actually grows. The seeds planted at baptism continue to grow. The priesthood is like that. Once you're a priest, you don't get reordained. And you also can't get unordained. Yeah? It's a lifelong decision. You can get a permission to not celebrate Mass and the prohibition from celebrating Mass. And, you know, it happens and it's it's kind of a failure in a sense, but God's always there with his mercy. So marriage is like that. Marriage is a sacrament. It, it has a beginning, but it doesn't, it's not a moment, you know? It's not, the sacrament of marriage wasn't on the day of your wedding. The grace of the sacrament, excuse me, continues and increases in time. How does it increase in time, you might ask? Good question. Every time you do an act of charity for your spouse, the grace increases. That's also why it's important for you to be in a state of grace. God doesn't need you to be in a state of grace. God can love your spouse to you when you're not in a state of grace, because God doesn't have any limits. But if you are in a state of grace, you collaborate with that process. And then grace changes not only your spouse, but also changes you. Yeah? Great. <laughs> Any other questions on this? Yes? What was the 30 second difference between a 30 second like, steal between annulment versus... 30 second difference between annulment and divorce. So some people, when they come to the church, like... They've heard about annulments, right? Like two people divorce and then they get an annulment and then they can get married again. And they're like, oh, so annulment is just Catholic divorce. So there's a difference. The difference is this, that when does God unite spiritually two people? When there's a sacrament of marriage. Sometimes two people think they might be getting married because like we went to Vegas, you know? Like I bought the ring. Did you see the ring? You know, like I know a guy who's like, he got married in a helicopter. And his wife kind of came to the faith, and she's like, you know, we're not really married. He's like, do you know how much that helicopter cost? <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're married, you know? So it can sometimes happen that two people, meaning well, right, me- probably meaning well, go through the motions and say the words, but they don't really intend to be married exclusively with the other person and open to life for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So, if you do that, but you don't really intend for that to happen, yeah, you're not actually doing what the sacrament requires. It's like if I take a piece of cardboard and say, this is my body. It doesn't actually become a sacrament. Yeah? The matter 
isn't there. The words are there, the form is there, the externals are there, but it's not really a sacrament. The same thing happens sometimes with some couples, and it's, it can be very sad. It can be very happy, but it can be very sad. Maybe one person really wants it, the other person not so much, yeah? Or any combination. That's an annulment. Is that clear? Yes. I have a marriage between somebody who's Catholic and someone who's baptized, but not necessarily Catholic. Yeah. And it's agreed in a few different things. Yeah. Yeah. So the sacrament, strictly speaking, exists between any two baptized persons. Yeah. They don't need to be Catholic. So two Protestants that are married without any reference to the Catholic Church at all have a sacramental marriage. Yeah. They might not believe that. They might not necessarily call it that. But that's actually what's happening. Just like when a Protestant is baptized, they're baptized with the one baptism that unites everybody. Is that Yeah. To get married by a legitimately delegated person is a requirement that the Catholic Church has put on its members. Why has it put that requirement, you might ask? Because back in the Middle Ages, people would elope, they'd walk into the forest, you know, they'd come out, like, you know? Yeah? We're married, you know? Yes, we're married, right? So the church, like, put all these rules to protect the freedom of the parties that are getting married. Yeah? But those rules only apply to people within the society of the church. The church is not just a spirituality, it's also a legal entity. Yeah, so you can put rules to regulate things. Yeah. Between a Catholic and someone that's not baptized, the church hasn't really specified what that means. Yeah. In a sense, I mean it's unbreakable, but it's might not be exactly sacramental, or it might be just sacramental from the perspective of the person that's married, there's a grace occurring on the other person. And for the person that's not baptized baptized, the person that's not baptized there's all the goodness of his or her heart reaching out, but not exactly the same presence of Christ inside of their soul, because if you're not baptized, you can't receive any other sacrament. Baptism is the door to the other six sacraments. Yeah? Great. Crystal clear? Say what you're going to say, say it, and then say what you said. So, the sacrament of marriage is a participation in a mystery in the life of Christ that gets deposited in the heart of two spouses. The mystery that's deposited in the heart of I two spouses. I didn't sh- get that. You know when this, uh, that's really weird. That hasn't happened in a long time. But the last time it happened, it was also in a marriage talk. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Except I didn't give it. I was sitting down. There was Father Martin Connor was giving this talk, if you know him. A legionnaire was giving this talk. And he wanted to start like groups of couples getting together, right? So we're in the basement of this large house. And like there's like maybe, you know, like 13 couples. And they're all sitting next to one another, you know. And I'm sitting right in the middle. And there's no one next to me, right? There's like two, one, two, 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 right? And I'm just there, you know, listening and whatever, kind of taking notes from Father Martin, you know, my mentor and this, right? And all of a sudden my phone, for no reason, says super loud, 
I am having a hard time connecting. <laughs> it's so weird. Stop, 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 stop. Uh, so, the mystery of the, of the life of Christ that married couples participate in is Jesus' effort, Jesus' effort, to refashion marriage according to the plan of his Father, which he accomplishes by evangelizing marriages and blessing them and living in a marriage and re-establishing everything, and then finally by himself assuming the role of Adam in regards to Eve, the new Eve, which is the church. That's planted in the heart of couples. How is that planted in the heart of couples? Through the sacramental rite of marriage which is where two couples get to exercise their baptismal priesthood, speaking with the very words of Christ to one another and promising eternal love, speaking not just for themselves, but with themselves and Christ. You tap into that love in the moment of marriage, and you continue to tap into that love and renew that love every single time you do an act of charity towards your spouse. Grace increases in your heart and increases in the heart of the person that you're married Okay? Great. I think that's it, unless there are any other questions. Did you have anything that you wanted me to talk about that I didn't talk about? No? I have a question. Yeah, we have a lot of questions. That's okay. Um, should you love the spouse before the children? What do you think? Well, I got the spouse. Obviously, yeah. No, no, I don't mean that like dismissively, but 100%. The sacrament exists between you and your spouse. The best relationship. So in a family, there's a bunch of relationships, right? Dad to daughter, dad to father, dad to wife, you know, dad to whatever, mom to kid, mom to second kid, brothers among themselves, brother to sister, sister to brother, right? All these relationships are present. The only relationship that is strictly speaking sacramental is mom and dad. Wait, I shouldn't even say mom and dad. Husband and wife. Yeah, that's the only one that's sacramental. Also, that happens to be the most important relationship for everybody else. The best gift you can give your daughter is to love your husband. Yeah, to love your spouse. That's the single best gift. Yeah, it's the most important Great. Well, if that's it, then we're going to pray and we're going to call it an evening. How does that sound? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, please bless each of these, your couples that are here. Bless those who are married and enkindle, re-enkindle in each of their hearts a love for their spouses, a love that comes from you and your victory in the sacraments. Lord, for all those that are in discerning marriage, Please give them clarity and generosity and peace and your eyes to see one another the way that you see them. Lord, to those who are dating, give them purity and strength and fortitude to love generously, to lay aside all sin so that they may learn to love one another the way that you love them. Lord, for all those who here are not dating and singles, Lord, purify their hearts, give them great peace and confidence in your plans and present to them when it's your time that person that you have planned in mind that they can love and grow in love together and become a sign of love in the church. And Almighty God, bless all of you present here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Amen. Amen. All right.